We pray. Amen. The Old Testament lesson is taken from Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Receive the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kate. For those I haven't met, my name's Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. If, uh, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts in the New Testament. Acts chapter 20, chapter 2, uh, looking at verses 22 through 41. If you have a pew Bible, it starts on page 1693. This morning, we're actually going to hear one of Jesus' closest followers named Peter uh, addressing a group of actually very religious people. Today, we might call them church folk. All of them have actually just witnessed together the miraculous. People from all over the ancient world had just come to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Jewish festival of Shavuot, or Pentecost as we might call it. Suddenly there was a sound like a violent wind rushing and what looked like tongues of fire descending on this group of people from this backwoods place called Galilee, people that were known to be followers of Jesus. Suddenly, though, this diverse group that had surrounded them began hearing them uh, praising God, not in their own language, but in everybody else's language, people from dozens of regions with dozens of different languages and dialects. And in the wonder and the confusion that, that followed this, Peter speaks up to bring some clarity. He reminds them of the things that they already had heard. He reminds them that this is exactly what God said would happen through the prophet Joel, that one day he would pour out his spirit on his people, and it had now happened, but but why now? And what does this actually mean for all of them? Well, that's what Peter is going to tell them, by reminding them of the things that they already knew and had heard and had seen to help them put the pieces together, to help this people of, of his day and actually to help us today see really who is Jesus and what does it mean to respond to him. So what we see here in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. This is Peter speaking, but this is very much God's word. Men of Israel, listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the others, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day we see here in Peter's message? We see an appeal. Beginning in verse 22, we see Peter appealing to the things that people already knew, what they'd seen and what they'd heard, and the signs and the wonders and the miracles. Then in verse 25, he goes on then to appeal to the Hebrew Scriptures, to the, the Old Testament, of what we might call it today, which included the words of King David, saying that all of these things actually pointed to Jesus as Messiah. And then in verse 32, he appeals to the reality of what they all just experienced. People praising God in all these different languages and the same people being those who had just told them that they'd seen Jesus risen from the dead. In other words, that what they just witnessed in Pentecost was God's public seal of approval on them and their message. So by the time Peter was done, God's people were convinced and confronted with the reality that we see in verse 36 that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that he was their long-awaited Messiah, that, that he is actually the one true king over all of humanity. You see, they knew that there was no denying this and that it couldn't be ignored, that they had to respond in, in some way, but the reality is Jesus didn't stop being Lord and Christ that day or even that century. You see, today Jesus stands before this church as Lord and Christ. How are you responding to his claim on your life? What does that mean to repent? What does that even look like? What is it about repentance 
that makes it so central to responding to Jesus that it's the very first thing that comes out of Peter's mouth when the people ask him, what shall we do? Well, that's what I want us to look at this morning. As we look at this passage, I want us to consider three questions about repentance. What does it look like? What hinders that? And how is it possible? So first, what is repentance? What does this actually look like so we would know it? Maybe the biggest problem with understanding and seeing what repentance is is that we think we already know what it is when in reality we may have just embraced a counterfeit, often called a penance. In his book on repentance, Jack Miller defines penance as a religious attitude deeply rooted in the human heart that prompts people to attempt to pay for their own sin by good works and sufferings. You see, penance, this combination of our own personal effort and, and personal uh, suffering, is, is essentially punishing ourselves so that God doesn't have to. And it's not something that we learn from the Bible. We learn it elsewhere. And it's actually something that I, I saw a lot of uh, pictures of in the news the last few years. Uh, for those of you who don't know, when I was in college, uh, I ran track and cross country, and so I was accountable to an organization called the NCAA. They're the ones that sanctioned all of our competitions and made sure that competition was fair and we all played by the rules. Now, you break the rules, and there'd be consequences. They could take away scholarships that your school was previously allowed to offer. They could even eliminate your entire sport for up to five years. They could lay the hammer down. So last year, in the newspaper, they uh, read an art- there was an article about one staff member at the University of Louisville involved with their basketball program who over a four-year span had spent $10,000 to hire exotic dancers and escorts to show up at parties that high school recruits would show up to to try to encourage them that they really want to come play basketball for Louisville. The university found out about it. They knew that sanctions would be coming, so they tried to get ahead of the game. And so what they actually did is is they self-reported the violation, admitted they're wrong, and then voluntarily punished themselves with hopes that the NCAA wouldn't offer any other punishment instead. To put this into perspective, when something somewhat similar happened at the University of Missouri a few years back, uh, they tried to right their own wrongs by punishing themselves in these ways. We're going to forfeit all of our wins from that basketball season. We're going to impose a postseason ban, so no matter how good we are, our season's going to end early. We're going to cut ties with those people who offered those benefits they shouldn't have. We're going to pay a fine voluntarily. We're going to impose our own reduction on scholarships and recruiting activities. When the coach at Louisville, though, was asked about the situation and their self-imposed sanctions, he said they should be enough to satisfy the NCAA. See, that's penance. It's punishing ourselves in order to satisfy someone that we've wronged so they don't have to punish us. It's hoping that we can actually appease the one that we've wronged if we suffer enough, if we do enough good to make up for the bad that we've done, and if we show that we're actually trying to do better. But penance is actually very different from what the Bible calls repentance. And that's what Peter's actually talking about here. Because, first of all, penance actually centers around what we do. It's actually making sure that we have done enough and suffered enough so that God is no longer mad at us. A way of showing that we're actually sufficiently miserable and regretful to actually deserve being forgiven. See, penance is actually self-righteous in nature. It actually earns us more of God's wrath rather than taking away because it's trying to show God that we're actually worthy 
of his favor, that his arm can be twisted, that his forgiveness is now something that we are owed. Second penance actually focuses on what we see and feel in ourself. You see, it's, it's really about feeling sorry for ourselves, not for the one that we've wronged. It's about being grieved over the consequences of our sin, not actually over the sin itself. Now imagine, which for some of us in this room, this won't be that hard, you're running late. And so you're driving faster than the law says you should. And you realize that you're actually doing it in a school zone just moments after you see those oh-so-familiar red and blue lights flashing in your rearview mirror as your pulse races and then your heart sinks because you know what's coming. It's not just the expensive ticket, but it's also points on your license. It's also more that you're going to have to pay when your insurance company finds out about this. And what if you actually know somebody who drives by and they see you? I mean, what would they think of you? And so you vow that you're going to be better. You're going to drive differently. You're going to change your ways. But, but why now of all times? Is it because you're grieved over your reckless driving habits? No, it's, it's because you got caught. It's because of the consequences that you, re- you regret. That's counterfeit repentance. It's grief over consequences, not over the act in itself. A focus on its effect on you, not what could happen to others. See, penance is not only self-righteous, it's also self-centered. It's just focusing on ourselves. And biblical repentance is actually very different from this. You see, at its root, biblical repentance implies a change. And that can look a couple different ways. First of all, it's a change in our focus from ourselves to the Lord. Did you notice uh, in this speech that Peter is giving that he only spends barely a verse talking about what they did and spends the rest of the time talking about Jesus, talking about the works of Jesus, the expectation of Jesus, about the resurrection of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, that, that he is the Christ. You see, biblical repentance actually turns our focus from ourselves to our Lord. And when he actually becomes our focus, we actually start to see that his perspective becomes our perspective. It's because biblical repentance is fundamentally a change of mind. That's literally what the word that's used here means. It's a change of how we perceive things and the change in how we see our actions, even a change in how we see ourselves, but it only follows a change in how we see Jesus. You see, for those in the crowd, 50 days prior, they probably thought it was a good idea to call for the execution of Jesus. It was looking like the good and the righteous thing to do because, after all, their, their leaders were saying so. But what if they were gravely mistaken about the one who'd been killed? Um, last year in Cincinnati, uh, there was a guy who made national news um, when he heard a noise in his basement. You see, uh, earlier that morning, he'd already taken his son, you know, he'd, he'd outside, you know, saw him walk to the bus stop, saw him get on the bus, and saw the bus go away. And so he assumed later on that morning that, of course, nobody should be in the basement. And so thinking it was an intruder and trying to protect his his family, he he got his gun. He went downstairs, and seeing nobody, he started searching the closets one by one until he opened one closet door to see an intruder jump out, shout at him, scaring him, and he pulled the trigger. One shot that hit the intruder in the neck to his surprise he actually recognized the person who was now bleeding to death on his floor. It was his son who'd come back home. He was playing hooky. See, the action that he thought would actually preserve his people, preserve his family, actually cost the son his life. 
and what he was feeling, probably a lot like what Peter's crowd was feeling when they realized the same. See, by the end of Peter's speech, those who had heard him began to see things very differently. They began to see their actions very differently. They began to see themselves very differently. See, what they thought was this righteous deed, we're we're calling for justice for this blasphemer, this, this dangerous religious fraud named Jesus, turned out to be committing the worst injustice possible, taking the life of the one who actually came to save their life, their own Messiah, the Lord himself. You see, what they, what they once thought was good, they're now actually seeing as evil. One day, they're just good religious people. The next day, they realize that they were complicit with the Romans in murder. But the change in their perspective only came after a change in how they saw Jesus. Realize this. Today, Jesus stands before us, too, as Lord and as Christ. As we consider that, are we open to the possibility that what we think actually earns us more of God's favor might actually have the opposite effect, that what we actually feel justified in doing could actually be wrong? You see, at the heart of repentance is a willingness to discover that we are wrong and then simply to respond to that accordingly. You see the willingness in verse 36 where the people are asking, what shall we do? And yet repentance isn't just for those who do not yet believe. It's not just for those other people. It's for church people. It's for believers too. You see, it's what Jesus actually calls the church to in in Revelation chapter 2 because repentance isn't just this one-off thing. It's continual. 500 years ago, Martin Luther famously wrote, although in German, that all of life is repentance. We might see as acts of repentance today, you know, turning away from one behavior or or turning towards another is actually just the result of of a heart of repentance. But the one without the other is is actually a counterfeit. Repentance is the very heart of what it means to respond to Jesus. And so what gets in the way of that? What actually hinders that for us? Well, in a word, pride, which can take a lot of different forms. Uh, Maybe the most popular form is what the Greeks call hubris, thinking too highly of ourselves. Most popular not only because it's most common, but because we like it. I mean, we love to think a lot of ourselves, even more so than we should. He says, you see, pride says, I'm not really that bad. and In fact, I probably haven't really done anything I need to repent of, but I'm sure if I did, then I would know it, of course. You see, pride sets ourselves over another, comparing ourselves, feeling that as long as we're doing better than another person, then we're probably okay. Pride makes us feel justified in what we're doing, usually through our rationalization, because after all, if we did it, I mean, how bad could it really be? You see, in essence, pride blinds us to the need for repentance. The Apostle Paul writes about this from personal experience when he writes to the church in Corinth. He was one that knew at one time he would hunt down and try to kill Christians because he thought that was doing God a favor. And so he can speak on good authority when he says, just because my conscience is clear doesn't mean that I'm innocent. In the same way, our clean conscience can be misleading because of our own pride. See, pride can make us delusional in, in other ways, particularly for high achievers. And there's a lot of us here in this room. I remember my last year in Las Vegas, I, uh, I had to move a couple times, and so uh, once two friends who were smart enough to earn the title doctor helped me out. Now, they were really accomplished in their own field, but neither of them had earned their degree in moving. So with the same confidence that they went about their very well-paying day jobs, 
they unloaded the, they loaded up this truck for me in ways that made me very nervous. But they assured me my furniture would be fine. So we closed the door. We drove across town, opened up the door, and it's like an earthquake struck the back of my truck. And by the end of the afternoon, my most valuable piece of furniture, a 200-pound granite uh, kitchen tabletop, had become a, a hockey puck. Uh, or like air hockey, whatever. It was just like going bing, 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 bing all over the back of the truck, leaving little pieces of its granite self behind. It reminded me, pride can convince us that our ability in one area of life wrongly makes us think that we're actually able in other areas of life. And so when we discover our own sin, our own crimes against God, or our own guilt, our own shame, we like to think that we can handle that too. It was about 15 years ago when I was working as a minister to college students, that uh, I met one uh, in the honors program, and I got to be the first person to introduce him to what Jesus called the gospel. How Jesus actually lived the life that we should have lived, but could never have lived. How he died the death that our sins deserved and offered that as the only substitute that would help. And apparently, he heard it really clearly, because when I asked him what he thought of it, he said he was offended. When I asked this high achiever why, he says, I guess it's pride. I don't want to believe that Jesus would have to do that for me. I want to believe that I can do that for myself. You see, because of our pride, we actually prefer penance over repentance. Because we prefer any means of justifying ourselves over really anything else. So much so that we actually think penance is repentance. That actually is what Christianity is all about. Well, a pastor in Omaha named Bob Thune probably put it best when he said that many Christians are convinced based on their, get this, despair, regret, and self-loathing that they are repentant, but in reality are not repentant at all. Because penance, which he described, lets us be our own Savior by what we've suffered and what we've done, or repentance actually seeks Jesus as Savior. You see, there's something about our pride that likes to believe that whatever the rule is, we're the exception to the rule. And oftentimes that leads us to live in isolation, trying to handle the greatest struggles on our own like we just can when I was in seminary, a roommate of mine told me a lot about cycling because he was a cyclist, and he told me a lot about drafting, where you tuck in behind other riders and you pack up together to break the wind together, and somehow it saves like up to 50% of your energy at high speeds. Now, if a cyclist wants to win a race, they just don't go sprinting off the starting line and leave everybody in their dust thinking they're going to show how awesome they are. Now, if they do that, they're going to look like a million bucks at the beginning while everyone else is packed up together. And then they're going to start dropping back and falling back and back and back some more. You see, many of us have taken that approach to our spiritual lives. We don't think we need others in our life. We don't think we need the pack. We don't think we need the body of Christ, the church. And so we're trying to go it alone. And as a result, we find ourselves sliding back and back and back. Or worse yet, we get swept away in the delusion of our own false assumptions. We come those that nobody can tell we're wrong anymore. A friend of mine, tragically, I, I realized this in his life, uh, when in his chosen isolation, uh, he never heard any pushback from the choices that he was making behind closed doors until the FBI started knocking on that door and his wife walked out the door. See, repentance is needed, but it, it's challenging to us because sometimes it means swimming against the cultural currents. Even where we'd last expect to need to. You see, for Peter's audience, the corrupt generation that he spoke of was actually epitomized by the best of their culture, their own religious leaders. 
See, the first change that repentance actually would call them to and actually calls us to is not just a change in, our, uh, in how we think or a certain behavior, but actually a change of mind about a person. You see, if Jesus actually is Lord of all, then he's Lord of all of our lives. Not just back then for them, but, but even for us today, for me personally. Lord of how we use our money, how we use our time, how we use our bodies, how we use our tongue. How we relate to others, those that are different from us, the weak, the poor, the marginalized, the rich, even, even our enemies, whoever we may see them as. And it's not just about the external things, but the internal things, that he's actually Lord over our motives, our inner life, not only what we do, but, but the secret motives behind what we do. And many who see that, who see what it would cost them to actually live as if Jesus were Lord over the life, we panic we don't want that to be true, and so instead we, in our pride, embrace what Tim Keller calls a uh, Stepford God to a real one. If you've seen the movie Stepford Wives, you already know what that's like, but for the rest of you, here you go. Um, and actually, in his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller describes it this way. In any truly personal relationship, the other person has the ability to contradict you. For example, if a wife is not allowed to contradict her husband, they wouldn't have an intimate relationship. So here's where the Stepford Wives comes in. In the movie, Stepford, the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decide that they're going to uh, get better wives than the ones that they had by replacing ones that actually can challenge them with robots. Those that can never challenge them, never tell them that they're wrong. You see, a Stepford wife, as you see in the movie, is always wonderfully compliant and, and beautiful, but, but no one would actually describe such a marriage as intimate or personal or, or even real. You see, here's the parallel. You see... As those seeking to have a relationship with God, you may find your way looking at what God has spoken through the words of Scripture. Decide that you're going to take what you already agree with. Take what you already believe. Take what challenges those other people. But then we probably also prefer to ignore or explain away the rest of it, the part that actually does challenge us. To that, Keller asks the question, how will you ever have a God who then can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a step for God, a God essentially of your own making, not a God of whom you can actually have a relationship or any genuine interaction. He finishes saying, only if your God can say things that challenge you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or a marriage, will you know that you have gotten a hold of a real God and not just a figment of your imagination. And yet to actually embrace that type of God like a real God requires a change in your object of trust. Because in our pride, the real logic of our trust is actually ourselves. And yet true repentance and its counterpart of, of faith are really just two sides of the same coin. And that coin, if you want to put a name on it, is a response of trust in Jesus. In fact, all of the hindrances to repentance that we've looked at are really just signs of a misplaced trust. You see, the call to repentance is essentially a call to shift, to change. We're from placing our trust anywhere else to actually placing that trust fully in Jesus alone. In other words, all of our eggs are in his basket. We're all in on Jesus. No hedging our bets. No plan B if it doesn't turn out the way that we expected. It's radical what true repentance is. I mean, how is it even possible, we can ask? Well, maybe the biggest hindrance to repentance among people both inside and outside the church is, is actually that it was introduced to us apart from grace. See, maybe we think of repentance, we think of like the protester with the sign saying, you know, turn or burn, or, or shouting something angry at, or maybe those guilt trips that we had, you know, in our first religious context. But in the gospel, repentance only finds its place in the light of God's grace. 
because, as Greg Johnson has said before, the one who demands everything also gives us everything far beyond what we deserve. And it begins with his promise in baptism. If you look in verse 38, Peter links repentance with baptism and with forgiveness. And there's a good reason because years before that, John the Baptist was linking the three of them together as well. So to give you some context, back then, if you were a non-Jewish convert to Judaism, you had to be baptized. You had to go through this public washing to publicly acknowledge your own uncleanness and that you need to repent and that you needed to be forgiven. And then John the Baptist flips the script when he, as a religious Jew, tells other religious Jews, we need the same thing. You need to be baptized. I need to be baptized. We need to acknowledge our own need for repentance and forgiveness and cleansing. To do that, to actually seek forgiveness, would mean you actually first have to acknowledge that you need forgiveness to acknowledge a need that you know you can't meet on your own through your own effort or merit. You see, penance, on the one hand, wants to pay restitution. We want to be able to make up for what we've done by doing something else, but to seek forgiveness means admitting that we can't pay the appropriate restitution at all. Our only hope is that that debt is canceled or that someone else offers to pay it for you. As Bill Thrall and Bruce McNichol and John Lynch write in their book, True Faced, Repentance isn't doing something about our sin. Rather, it means admitting that we can't do anything about our sin. I'll say that again. Repentance isn't doing something about our sin. Rather, it means admitting that we can't do anything about our sin. You see, for those that Peter spoke to, they, they didn't know of any sacrifice from the Old Testament law that says, here's what you offer if you accidentally uh, are complicit in the death of your own Messiah. It's not in there. The reason that it says in verse 37 that they were cut to the heart is that they knew that nothing could atone for their sin. And if you're a Christian in this place, you know that you too are in the same boat. You know that the same is true of you. In fact, when we take membership vows here in this church, the very first thing that we acknowledge is that we're a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure without hope save in his sovereign mercy. Something that actually undermines the very pride that hinders our repentance saying that we not only need God's forgiveness, but in the later vows that we take, that we actually need each other, that we can't do this alone. And yet to those who see their need, and this turn to Jesus in their need, what we see in verse 39 is that God offers a promise to them. See, baptism wasn't just an acknowledgement uh, that they needed to be forgiven, but a demonstration of their faith that God could actually forgive them. As he says, in Jesus' name, in other words, because of what Jesus did, not because of what they do. And the timing of this was key. You see, God had just fulfilled a centuries-old promise when he poured out his Spirit like he prophesied through Joel. If they had just seen God fulfill one promise that they'd been waiting generations for, how much more is he able to fulfill this promise and forgive them? But how? How could God be just and yet still forgive them? What Peter does is instead of responding them to another sacrifice to offer they've never heard of, he actually points them to Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf, to Jesus himself, so that their focus would be Jesus, that he would be their trust, that he would be their Savior, that he would be their Lord and Christ. You see, in the person of Jesus, God offers his own perfect life in place of your imperfect life, in place of my imperfect life. And on the cross, Jesus offers to God his act of suffering in place of your suffering. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. 
Jesus' life for your life, his perfect record for your imperfect record, his punishment instead of your punishment. It's what the Bible calls grace. The more that we actually understand this gospel of grace, the more we actually want to change. You see, if we actually believe this, finding out that we're wrong in some area doesn't have to devastate us because we weren't basing our identity or our rightness before God on our own moral record to begin with. Actually, as a result, more willing to see where we're wrong, to see where we need to change, and actually more able to turn to the things that cause us to turn away from God. Turn away from the things that cause, you know what I mean. Later in Acts, we actually learn of, a, of another named Saul of Tarsus who thought that they were doing good at the time. He was so zealous in his religious fervor that he actually went out as a religious, accomplished Jew to go out and punish others that he thought were heretics. But then he saw Jesus. When he saw Jesus for who he was, it forever changed how he saw his actions and how he saw himself. And yet the more he began to be transformed, the more self-sacrificial he became, the more he became like Jesus, not the more prideful he became, but actually the more humble he became because he began to see not only how sinful he really was beneath the surface, but also how loved and accepted he was in Jesus. As a result, he was someone who was willing to do anything for God, even lay down his life for him because that's what his Lord already did for him. And you see what changed him as the same thing that changed Isaiah. What we heard Kate uh, share with us in the, the scripture reading You see, when Isaiah comes face-to-face with God, with any of us, anyone in Scripture comes face-to-face with God, they are undone. They see things as they are. Being overwhelmed by the greatness of God is actually what leads him to see himself as unclean, to see himself as he am, to actually grieve over not the consequences of his sin, but the sin itself. And yet, when he hears the words that your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for, when he sees that God's forgiveness is greater than his sin. He is ready to do whatever God would have him to go wherever God would have him go. So he says, here I am. Send me. That's repentance. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced a grace so radical as to change your life? If not, Maybe the message for you today is stop trying to do penance and repent. See, if you think that you can do something about your sin, some form of of penance, you'll find yourself willing to do that thing. But if you realize that you can't do something about your own sin, you'll find yourself willing to do anything for the one who has taken away your sin. That's repentance. It's when that internal change happens that the external change follows. It's when we stop trusting in ourselves to change and trust in Jesus to change us. We actually see in the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, a beautiful picture of repentance. You see, in the story, the younger son, in his own selfish pride, uh, takes his family inheritance, leaves the family farm, decides to go it alone, living it up, he's broke, hungry, and empty in every way imaginable. So he comes to his sentence. He has a change of mind. He realizes his own inability to do it on his own, and and he sees his need. He sees the father who can meet that need, and it leads him to return home. What he's expecting is a father with arms crossed who will make him suffer and grovel and work to make up his wrongs. But what he finds instead 
is a picture of how God actually responds to us in our gospel-based repentance. And it gives us a new perspective on things, a new perspective on God, not as the ogre shaking a stick at you, but the Father loving you, longing for your return, running to embrace you as you come home. A new picture of ourself as a wayward and yet beloved child. A picture of how we come to him with empty hands, nothing to leverage the situation, and of how we are actually received when we come in repentance. This image of a robe put on our back, the Father covering our sin and shame with his own honor, This picture of a ring on our finger showing that we belong, that we are part of his family, never to be forsaken. And this picture of a celebration reminding us that the thing God wants the most is simply for our own return. And yet in this passage, in Peter's sermon, he tells us about another gift that God gives. The promised Holy Spirit. You see, in response to the heart-piercing reality of our own spiritual condition, God goes beyond giving us a pardon. He goes beyond throwing us a party. He gives us his very self And with it, a new identity and a new power to follow him. And the joy of that freedom of Peter's audience experience and witnesses, soon they're about to have the same thing in themselves because God is now alive and working in them by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to bring about the fruit of the Spirit. They start seeing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and for the first time, self-control, nothing short of a new life. Yet not a power born of their own suffering or striving, but their trust in Jesus' suffering on their behalf, doing for them what they could never do for themselves. The trust that we exercise each week as we come to this table, to the Lord's Supper. You see, just like the wayward child in Jesus' parable, each week we're invited to a feast that points us to God's grace. You see, it's at this table where we actually act out the thing that we believe in our repentance, that it's not just because of our suffering, it's not about our suffering, but about Jesus' suffering that allows us to come to God. His body broken, his blood shed, not our works that we trust in, but his works that we trust in. Friends, that's what repentance is about. Trusting the one who demands everything only because he gives us everything. His promise of forgiveness, his Holy Spirit, even his very life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you offer to us who realize we can't be our own Savior, that we have a need far beyond anything that we could ever accomplish and handle on our own, that you welcome us. You ask us to turn away from our own striving, from our own attempts to try to make ourselves feel bad enough to the point that we merit your forgiveness and actually invite us to come and experience your joy because of what you did on our behalf. Father, for whatever it is that came to mind when we thought of repentance this morning, whatever it is that we know that you're calling us to turn away from, Father, give us a fresh look at your grace, your love for us, that in embracing that, as we turn to you, that you would empower us to turn away from that which is binding us, which is ruining our lives. Father, grant us liberty even as we come to this table as a step of faith, trusting that you forgive because of what Jesus has done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.